university degrees really lose value quickly. There's micro-credentials coming up that are hugely helpful, take only a few months and they have value in the market. People who have like neurodiversities, like have a bit of autism or ADHD, they do not fit the education system as we have designed it 150 years ago. But that doesn't mean they don't have unique talents or unique skills that are actually valuable for our society. That is what drives me to where I see tech has huge potential to bring out these unique skills and talents of people that do not fit our classical education system, however, are very valuable for society in whatever way. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Hester Spiegel is the co-founder of Epic Angels, the largest female-only angel investor network investing in startups in APAC and the founder of the School 42 campuses in Germany. Before becoming a founder and entrepreneur, she had an international career with PricewaterhouseCoopers and Deutsche Bank. She currently lives in Singapore and is a mom to two boys under 10. Hi, Hester. It's so nice to finally speak with you again. Hi, Amanda. Great to be here again. I think there is a lot of activity now going on with Epic Angels, and I'm excited to speak about that with you. But before that, I'd love to get to know you a little deeper. With the podcast, you always like to hear about everyone's personal stories, everybody's maybe hero's journey towards how they got to where they are today. So I guess my first question for you is, um, what was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? Oh, my childhood was very uh, worryless uh, without any kid. It was, uh, I grew up in the northeast of the Netherlands, in between rural and city kind of place. I walked to school. I didn't have a lot of homework after school. It was uh, quite worryless. And yeah, enjoyed that a lot. Then moved to Amsterdam to study when I was 18. So that's when I was ready for the, for the big city. In between, I actually went on a, um, a year away with people. So I traveled the world for a year. I was 18, traveled in a group of 120 people of 22 nationalities and uh, explored the world, which now being a mom, I'm not sure I would do pre-even email time. There was not having mobile phones, etc. So sometimes I didn't contact my parents for about two months because I was enjoying the time so much. And then they called in like, oh, it's good to know you're still alive. So I think that is where the interest in international life, different cultures, different people really started. And now yeah, I've lived in four countries uh, in my working life and still really much enjoy interacting with people from all over the place. Well, I want to ask you, is the worryless life something that's maybe designed by the people in the Netherlands for everyone else's childhood? Is it because of the economic structure of like how maybe they have a lot of welfare, or a lot of well, they design schools to have less homework, or is it something your family wanted to do for you guys? I think it is partly in the national culture, so to speak. Also, when I, so I've been out of the Netherlands for 12 years. When I come back, it always strikes me how happy the people are. So that is something that is just in the people. I think people smile, are happy, make a chat. And that is not everywhere in the world the same, as I found out. So it's partly just in the, in the character of the people. And I, I think that is a bit infectious as well. And partly, I think there's also indeed the government, how they organize social welfare, et cetera, education, healthcare, that's all taken care of uh, very well. The place of education in the culture of the Netherlands is different from, for example, Asian countries. The need for academic performance is a lot less. Here, I can understand education is part of social mobility, where that is less the case in the Netherlands. So a child in the Netherlands, usually doesn't have that much homework, can play after school, etc., because education is just viewed differently. The emphasis is on different things in childhood. What would they focus on in childhood if it was not as much education? Are people pushed to explore more or are they pushed to go outside more, interact with people more? Yeah, I think it's a lot on playing, a lot on social things, team sports. Field hockey is one of the big sports. Football is one of the big sports, as in soccer. So those are all team sports. So yeah, a lot of kids do a lot of sports and, and just play outside. 
And what were you interested in back then? Uh, I always played tennis and I still do. That's always been on uh, a level. I can be quite competitive. So this is where I can, <laughs> that's my vent to uh, kind of get that in. So I've always played tennis a lot and really, really enjoyed that. Also hanging out with friends. I still have friends from uh, my oldest friend is when I was three years old. We still are very, very good friends. We met up in Thailand, in fact, a month ago. Yeah. So from all the stages in that time in the Netherlands, still have good friends. And yeah, that was also possible to do fun things together. And what made you take that, you know, one year, I guess, one year abroad with 22 nationalities? <laughs> ah, so... We were actually a host family. So I was 12 years old. And then this same organization came to Zwolle, where I was uh, uh, raised. This organization is made up also to foster cultural awareness. So there's three pillars. There's like the people stay in host families. They do a show, which is like a musical show. And they do community work. So this group came to my hometown and we were a host family. So we hosted two people from Canada. And to me, I was 12 years old. That was just, I was in awe. These guys, I think they were like mid, like early 20s or so. And they traveled the world and they did this show and they did all these things in our, in our neighborhood. And I just thought then I want to do this. So uh, that was a goal that I had since I was 12. Like when I am out of school, I want to travel with this group. I want to travel the world with other people, young people and, and see the world. So, um, yeah, so that started when I was 12 and then I was 18. I applied. First, I got uh, denied and then I tried again, said, I really, really, really want to go. And then they let me in. And how did you even meet this group? Did the group reach out to your family? Did it reach out to your school? Ah, you no, they did advertisement in the, in, the, uh, in the city. So there were a couple of people from this group who traveled ahead from the group to our hometown, like they do with every city. Uh, find the host families, make some noise about the show that's coming, sell the tickets, etc. So this is how we found out about it. Got it. And then I guess your parents found out about it and they were receptive to having people over, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Are your parents um, very traditional people? Like they're very much in line with the culture or do you think they're more open than others? Uh, I think they're very Dutch in the sense that they are very open-minded. My mom has always worked. So she went to university and, and had her own career. She she was a judge. Uh, my father was a public notary. So they were both, my whole family is from the legal side. So I was kind of a black sheep in that sense. But yeah, I grew up with a working mom, which I found totally normal. And I never, ever missed it that she was not always there. She, we were taken care of very well, me and my sister. And uh, enjoyed also that we had real conversations at the dinner table, for example. So my, my parents always looked very much eye to eye, uh, mm -hmm. had real conversations about things, uh, had their own opinions. And to me, that was a great role model for later. So both me and my sister always have worked and been independent in that sense. And how does that one year traveling overseas shape you? In hindsight, a lot. I was going for the thrill. Just traveling, being away, seeing people going to countries far away. But in hindsight, I think it has set the tone for many choices that I make now. I was 18, which was quite young. So the age range is between 18 and 25. So I was one of the younger ones. But dealing with people of young age of so many different nationalities, we had 22 different nationalities in a group of 150 just opens your mind. Also staying with host families is, um, I'll never forget some experience. So you stay with people from the group in host families. And so I stayed with people who are deaf, for example, host families. One had a very scary dog. I remember everything started in the house at, at one meter 50 because the dog ate everything. We had one family with a snake that they let loose and put in between the couch just to you know, have a pull a prank on, on their visitors. And then there was a huge python and suddenly came out. So funny people and, and hugely nice people. And I remember we were in Las Vegas, for example, very close to Las Vegas was a one hour drive in the US. That's not a lot, right? You, one hour drive is quite normal. So we were super excited that we were going to see Las Vegas because we were so close. And this woman, um, lived there for 18 years in that house. And she said, I've never been in Las Vegas. 
And we were like, how is that possible? You've never been in Las Vegas. You, you live so close. Yeah. And I said, yeah, why should I? I am happy here. I'm content. What? But I don't miss anything. Why would I drive to Las Vegas? So in the end, we've never seen Las Vegas. And I was so close. <laughs> but that also taught me a lesson like, is it good to be happy with what you have? Sometimes you just need to be happy with what you have. But on the other hand, curiosity also very important to have just to learn things and see how the world around you works. Very different experiences, but I've always loved to travel and always uh, be very love work, being around people from different cultures and uh, different backgrounds. Are there any like key lessons from the year abroad that you really remember until today or key decisions that you made after it? I think one key lesson is uh, never make assumptions. You really don't know where people come from. You don't know what has shaped the way they are. So don't make assumptions and ask just to educate yourself and become better. Curiosity is one thing. So this lady in her house so close to Las Vegas is something like, okay, I think I'm more of the curiosity type. I always like learning. Uh, there's a lot to learn from other cultures. Also, it makes you reflect on your own culture. For example, when I came back to the Netherlands, I found it so striking that people, when, when they went to do the trend, for example, they all like, you know, move their elbows and want to be first, first, first. I thought before that was very normal. But yeah. when you come back to your own country and you see some of those habits uh, and the way people think like, oh my goodness, that is something that, you know, some things you want to keep of your own culture and some mm -hmm. things you think, okay, that is maybe better elsewhere. So yeah, in general, it taught me to be very open-minded and don't assume a lot. Always ask and uh, and stay curious. So what happened after a year abroad? You went to university, right? So what major yeah. did you take and what was it like um, moving to Amsterdam? Yeah, so I had one goal. That is, I wanted to study in Amsterdam. So I picked the study that suited me more or less and uh, as long as I could live in Amsterdam. So that's very different, I think, from how people pick universities these days. It's also not so easy, but those days it was, was easier. So yeah, it was economics that I studied and that was halfway what I wanted to do. So I kind of expanded it with some other things like I was, I was working on the side. I did some courses in psychology. So I made it my own direction uh, by, by doing a few things extra on the side. I had a great time, lived in a student house with nine girls in the middle of the red light district. We lived in a, in a street that was full of the, like, sort of prostitutes, right? In the red light district in Amsterdam. It's the safest place I've lived in in Amsterdam of all the eight houses I, I was in. We were the only house that had no prostitutes in there. So, of course, the people who came there, mostly tourists, thought that we were also prostitutes. So they knocked the window and were waving like $100 bill or 100 euro bills. <laughs> We were like, no, no, go away. This is our living room. And we had a great relationship with all the ladies that were working in the street. For example, when our bike was stolen again, if if she had seen something, for example, and uh, sometimes she came over for a cup of coffee and sometimes they got into fights between each other and then we had to interfere. So that was really exciting. And still with these people that we lived together with, it was these nine girls, we still uh, have very, very good contact. We're still very good friends. and take trips every two or three years to a different city. Why do you think it was the safest location? Because there was a lot of social control. Mm -hmm. There was always people on the street. Mm -hmm. So and the type of people, yeah, you can debate what type of people they were, but there were always people on the street. Mm -hmm. And then the people from the bars, as well as the, the people who work in the red light district, they know who you are and oh, uh, they okay. keep an eye out. So when we were walking home late, for, for example, from going out or from work, I worked in a restaurant and uh, it was also always high, high, high and they kept an eye out. So I always felt safe. Oh, I guess that you get more familiar than your typical neighborhood, maybe because they work there. They're usually there versus other neighborhoods and maybe people just go in and out a few times. Of course, there's the tourists and there's the people who work there. And because it's such a particular area the red light district everybody knows each other who works there so yeah and then like what made you stay in a place in a red light district was it something you wanted to do intentionally or was it like how did that even happen <laughs> i'm not no, sure if it's a conventional decision <laughs> i wouldn't was, know it was unintentional <laughs> we with the student union we uh, uh found a house there to house all the students from the student union 
So a few years in the student union, we could live in the house. So we were the, we just found that house and kind of, it used to be an illegal uh, casino downstairs and an illegal brothel upstairs. So we took down all the walls. It was disgusting. I remember <laughs> we were there with big hammers and helmets on and we tore down all the walls and then built it up again. So we could live there with nine of us, but it was, um, among students, it's it's not a weird place to live in the red light district. And it was more or less coincidence that we found a house there that we could uh, renovate. And It sounds uh, like it was huge, like a huge place. So you guys were lucky. <laughs> oh, not really. It was very cramped. So all the rooms oh, are okay. to each other and we heard each other. It was just very, very thin walls in between. Mm. No, we made it fit for nine, but it wasn't oh, that big. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And then you had to move a bunch of times because... Maybe it's, is it because the student union only lets you live in a certain place for a fixed amount of time? Yeah, indeed. So that was for three years and then moved on to another place and need to make space for younger girls who came up. So uh, in total, uh, moved eight, uh, seven times into eight places. So different areas of Amsterdam, but yeah, so became a pro in moving. <laughs> and then you took a master's degree as well. What made you want to take a master's degree? Is that common? Amsterdam? It's quite common also because of the university life in Amsterdam and, and all throughout the bigger cities in the Netherlands is, is quite fun. So people study and then, yeah, it's, it was normal to take a master's degree. So for me, that was never really uh, a question. Really enjoyed it, you know, building networks that are still really a part of and that are very, no, that are built there that have been very important throughout. So it was never really a question. It was more like, okay, you study something. Most people study law or economics. That was it. And then enjoy student life for as long as, as you can. <laughs> After six years, I think the government stopped paying. So then you really had to make sure you were finished and then move on to the working life. Yep. And um, I know you mentioned you weren't really picky about the major and you cared more yep. about being able to study in Amsterdam. So <laughs> what was studying economics like for you? Did you sort of like it? Did you learn to like it? Did you not like it? <laughs> I think I learned to like it. I thought it was relevant. And uh, I liked the concepts that are underlying uh, that made sense to me. I've always been much of a people person. So I kind of completed it with some more people-focused subjects um, when the, in the psychology space. But I knew I never wanted to do something with psychology, but more to add on the people side of things to the to mm -hmm. the business economic side of things. So yeah, that was good. And then when you graduated, you went into PwC. Was that the ideal first job that you had in mind? First was at a small company. I guess you could start, call it a startup, no? Mm -hmm. uh, it was 12 people and we did a strategy execution for large multinational uh, companies. And... I rolled into that because of a friend. She worked there. So that's how, how that started. And I really, really enjoyed being involved from front to back. So I was involved in, in the strategy and HR and execution. I sat around the table with, with really the, the boards of, of large multinationals like TNT, the postal company was one of our clients. So I learned a lot there. That was after an internship I did at Deloitte, by the way. And then somebody from this small company, Maya Monitor, it's called, went to work at PwC in the M&A team to set up the post-merger integration team. And she said, oh, you should come work with me. We set up this team. It's brand new. It's a small thing inside this large company that PwC is. And I was like, I would not a hair on my head would think about working at PwC. So to me, everybody was the same, uh, you know, looked the same, thought the same, all this, this kind of group thing I'm a little bit allergic to, right? I like people who are a bit different. And to me, all these people looked the same and thought the same and did the same. So like, no, 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 that's not my environment, not my environment. Then I have a coffee and then it turned out to be quite exciting because we were building this whole new unit inside PwC. I thought, okay, that is nice. So I think that whole entrepreneurial spirit was already then that really attracted me. And, and we did that. So I think I was employee number seven in that unit. And I think when I left, we were with 30 something. Oh, wow. So that was, that was exciting. Yeah. 
So I was really focused on post-merger integration in the M&A team. So after a merger, how do you uh, tie the two mm. companies together? So you were seven when you joined and then when you left after two, three years? After it was three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that experience like for you? I guess your first company, you're about 12 people. Now you're one of seven, then one of was that 37 in a large company? How did it feel at that time? <laughs> yeah, no, it was, was good. I mean, when we were part of the, the very few in the beginning, it really felt like our own little company. We had a plan and we were building something that made sense uh, while having the name of a big company behind you, which was great, which was good. So the, the brand, the assets, et cetera, right? It was there. And then when it grew, I felt really it was part of what we built. Because we were there at the very, very beginning. So, um, yeah, it didn't feel like this big company. We always were this separate, separate piece. I loved running projects and very much like, okay, I like the working with different people, working towards a goal. And that was what daily life was like as we were running the projects, mostly for big banks where, for example, ING and Postbank, they integrated. So that was a big project that I did. And then later at Deutsche Bank. Uh, when they acquired parts of ABN in 2009, I went in as, as being uh, running the, the commercial integration for that project. When you got, I mean, when you started at Deutsche Bank, did you have a decision to join them or not? Or did you just have to go? No, no, uh, it was it was a decision. So they asked if I wanted to stay on, which made sense to me because I was much cheaper on the payroll <laughs> than for them to pay my hourly rate. So for so that was sensible for from their from their perspective. Plus the whole integration between Deutsche Bank and that part of ABN was set to take two and a half years because what they bought was thirty five thousand SME clients, whereas Deutsche Bank Netherlands was originally two hundred large cap clients. So the whole backend had to be built. It took two and a half years. So we knew already this whole integration project was going to take two and a half years. So when they said, "Do you want to join us and do exactly the same? So run this integration." But on the payroll instead of as an external, that felt really appealing to me because first of all, being a consultant is hard sometimes when it's you you make a plan and it's like, okay, here's the plan, good luck, and you kind of disappear. Plus also the hourly rate really bothered me. Like, okay, wh- what do I need to do to be worth this? It was just, I could not justify it for myself. So I really liked the challenge of running this for two and a half years and having the, the end responsibility for parts of this integration. So that was easy to say yes to that. I never look much further. I don't have a 10-year plan, for example, right? So I was like, okay, if this is going to be good for the next two or three years, I'm fine and we'll see after that. So yeah, so that's what happened. So I made the move uh, to Deutsche Bank in 2009 or 10, that was. And uh, stayed with Deutsche Bank for nine years, moved to London, ran large international projects, so global projects in the strategy team, which I really, really enjoyed all sorts. So in, again, integration projects, but also a cost-focused project, etc. So that was really fun. And then we moved to Frankfurt. I was still with Deutsche Bank. And that is where I made the change into the startup world, which was also not planned. The change came that was not by design. The transfer was really very normal to move between countries and cities when you were working in Deutsche Bank, especially in an international team. So I was not worried about that. But then it turned out that finding childcare was really difficult. In London, it's quite easy. You can choose. Okay, I want to know. I want to speak this language. Do those and those hours. But uh, in Frankfurt, that was very different because, again, cultural difference. Moms take care of their kids until they're three years old. That is how you do it. So if you are a working mom, that is, they, they even have a name for it. They call it Rabenmutter. It's like a raven mother. It's like you're not taking good care of your children. So it's very, very hard to find childcare. Thought we found one. Our kids were then three and one years old, not even one. So very small. But this lady turned out to be not really capable of taking care of kids. So after five months of coaching her for my work, I said, okay, this is not going to work. I had to let her go and uh, put things back on the rails again. So I uh, had time. I was out of work for three months. And in that time, I joined a conference at an international school in Frankfurt about tech and education. 
So I was curious and I thought, oh, that is interesting. Let's see what tech and education is, what the future of, of education is like, given all the technology developments. And um, that was absolutely shocking what I saw there. There was four teachers originally. It was 300 teachers sitting in a room. An international school, huh? so, so private school. And they had no clue how to update learning using technology and digital infrastructure. There was one lady who said, okay, I had uh, 200 iPads offered to me. They were new iPads, but it had a little flaw, so it could not be sold on the market. Then she could take them for free, but she said, no, I can't deal with iPads. I don't know how to update them. I don't know how to use them while teaching. So um, I declined them. So, and that was, I just, it shocked me how behind education is. Of course, you read it in the papers, but to really see it from so up close, how under digitized and undercapitalized education is, that somehow just got to me. And I thought, okay, these kids, it's not so hard to teach them a little bit, prepare them for their digital future more than what they get in this outdated school system that has not changed in 150 years. So I went home and started to make a, a plan how to teach kids how to code, collaborate, solve problems around them. And of course, that plan uh, had a lot, many versions, but didn't go anywhere in the end. But on this journey, I came across School 42, a, uh, a French concept. So as one of those campuses opened in Amsterdam and uh, my mom called me and said, look, and of course, she knew what I was working on. She said, look what's opening in Amsterdam. It's really interesting. So that was 42 is a school. It is a very modern education system and a coding school. The education system has no teachers, no academic uh, calendar. It has no curriculum. Well, it, it has a curriculum, but um, it is accessible for everyone. So this comes from France in 2013, when the youth unemployment was extremely high, over 25%. There was a hacker and an entrepreneur who came together and said, let's pick up all these kids from the street. We teach them how to code. Then they have a successful career. And the rest of the world has more tech talent because everybody needs it these days. So they got together and kind of redefined education. So they stripped out all the things that they thought was unnecessary in education. So this is how they came to this uh, model without teachers, without a calendar and without grades, for example. So I went to, uh, to London where I met the head of pedagogy and inquired, what about Germany? Do you already have schools in Germany? And he said, no. But of course, Germany has no youth unemployment. That was 4.2% at the, at the time. So I had to come up with another angle, uh, how to fit this education system to the German situation. So I come up with a case being that Germany was falling behind in the digital transformation compared to other industrial countries. And based on that case, I got the rights to bring this school to Germany. So then is when I quit my job at Deutsche Bank, I was like, okay, I hardly speak fluent German, but I, I really, really have to try this because I really believe in this education system. It's a bit radical, but most of it I believe in that it's accessible, that it's personalized, that it's tech enabled. So got lucky, found volunteers, all non-German, and we kind of set out to build this school. Eight months later, we got lucky and uh, found funding for two campuses instead of one. So in total, there was funding of uh, of $20 million, $22 million. So that's equivalent of about $30 million sing dollars to create these two campuses. And they went successfully live in spring 2021. Hey, wow, this is an amazing story. I was wondering how you got into tech, but I realized I didn't ask that anymore. But I had one question. What made you stay in Deutsche Bank over that 2.5 year mark? There was a lot of changes in that role. So I, I moved from within a division to on group level. So I got to learn different divisions. It was always projects. So that was always exciting. There was always different projects. So I was always working together with different people, uh, with a different goal, different objective. So there was enough change and excitement and adrenaline to uh, to keep me there. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was interesting how you mentioned that the lack of childcare helped you also get on that path of finding your next role, right? It was really one thing after the other, then the other thing, the whole iPad story, and then just finding out about this, um, not coding bootcamp, but coding school through your mom. (laughs) And now, well, not now, but then becoming the country head and funding for not one, but two physical campuses, right? I think that's, that's super interesting. Do you feel like, 
one reason why you cared about digitalization for education was because you were a mother yourself? Or do you think there were other things that made you feel strongly about it? Hmm. That's a good question. I think it felt unfair to me, to people, that people who do not fit the education system for reasons that are outside of their control do not have a great future in our current system. And that's not their fault. It's the fault of a system that has not evolved for 150 years, where if it's not graded, it doesn't count. It's still testing to the grade. It is transfer of knowledge that you have to learn. Whereas we live in an age where knowledge is everywhere. Content is everywhere. You need to learn how to learn. It should not be that your success in life is determined by how well you are able to memorize facts and content. Now, I met people throughout my life, and I think that's also where this this year of traveling helped, who are just different. And as I was researching these schools, and if I could set this up in Germany, I went to that campus in Amsterdam, and I talked to uh, to Vincent, I remember. So he was a guy, he was 19 years old. His parents divorced when he was 12. As I was talking to him, it was clear to me, he's a smart and very kind boy, right? His, his parents divorced when he was 12. His school grade started to go down, 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 until he ended on the lowest level of education in, in the Netherlands. And he thought, okay. My future is just to work in a supermarket and fill the shelves. He honestly thought that it was that. And then he heard about this school coming to Amsterdam. He applied. It's very hard to get in. Almost only 2% come in. So you have to show your motivation. And he got in. And now he was thriving. And he was back on, on track to have a successful future. This is just an example where somebody who things happen to them. But this is the same for people who have like neurodiversities, like have bit of autism or ADHD, they do not fit the education system as we have designed it 150 years ago. But that doesn't mean they don't have unique talents or unique skills that are actually valuable for our society. So that is what drives me to where I see tech has huge potential to bring out these unique skills and talents of people that do not fit our classical education system, however, are very valuable for society in whatever way. For example, in School 42, there's uh, quite a few people who are slightly autistic. They're super creative. So they're very, very good coders. And that is very valuable these days. So just as an example, and I think that is what drove me, that it does not make sense, the education system that we still hold up in the day and age that we live in. I believe in hyper-personalized education, right? Where it's hyper-personalized, where it's always relevant, what you learn. And tech enabled so that education can be efficient, more efficient than it currently is. So you're talking about how the educational system and how it measures, I guess, skill or talent is mainly via tests or via the amount of knowledge you memorize. When in fact, maybe, well, the jobs of today also don't really test by the same mediums as they did before. As you mentioned, uh, for engineering, maybe you don't need to be the top scoring person at your university, but if you can be the best coder... Um, and work well with the team, they might not even care what other, quote-unquote, other things that you may have, like a different kind of skill set or maybe a different kind of personality or a different, or maybe you have some form of autism, right? Maybe some jobs nowadays don't really care about that so much. Yeah, it's true. And you see it coming up in the form of micro-credentials, for example, where university degrees uh, really lose value quickly, as I, I see it. There's micro-credentials coming up that are hugely helpful, take only a few months, and they have value in the market. For example, um, tech companies like Google also do it. Right? Google has a course that gives you a micro-credential that takes three months. That actually has, has value, so you can use that. You don't need to go to university, especially in the U.S., where you incur huge debts. You know That, that takes you years and years to pay off. That model, I think, is, very, is outdated. That's on its recline. Right. And I think one point about the debt is that sometimes there are people who end up with this kind of debt and end up having to make different choices in their lives just because of this debt, right? They have to choose a different kind of job that maybe they don't particularly enjoy. They have to make a lot of sacrifices only to find out that maybe the degree wasn't worth um, nearly as much as they thought it was. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we see. The people who join the School 42 are also their problem solvers. And that's what we see that the world needs, in my view. It's not being brilliant academically, unless you pursue an academic career, that's fine. But if you do not pursue an academic career, being brilliant academically 
I do not see has much value. It is important that you learn to learn and become a problem solver. I think that is what, what is needed. And that is what we see now with these startups. People who are successful, they are detached from structures that we find normal. Nobody defines their life's path, right? So they ask critical questions. They are visionaries. And they, these are the people that really bring the innovations and solve real problems in the world. And I was wondering, you were talking about becoming, you know, the country head of the school while you were in Germany. And then I did see on your LinkedIn, you took a slight break in some advisory roles. And then you ended up in Singapore. So what brought you to Singapore? And that was because of the job of my husband. He got a job here in Singapore. So while I was raising funds for the school, he was interviewing for a job. And uh, then he got this job. So And I just found the funding for these two schools. So that's when he said, okay. So that was in December, first week of December 2019. That was on Monday and Wednesday. Both companies said, yes, we'll fund the school. So that was Volkswagen and, uh, and Lidl. And then he he just got the job. So he said, okay, I need at least half a year to to set up the campaign, to hire the people in the campuses, to, to find the CEOs and uh, the student recruitment, etc. So that was already the plan. So he started, he went to Singapore in January 2020. And the plan was that I would come in summer 2020 and also take the kids so they could also finish their school years. Then COVID hit. So um, in March, my husband came back uh, on one of the regular visits every three weeks. He came back for a weekend from Singapore to Germany. And then uh, that weekend was mid-March when everything closed. So he uh, landed in Germany opened his phone and saw all these messages of people saying, okay, borders are closing. Either you return now to Singapore, make sure you're there before Sunday night, or you stay and then you don't know when you can go back. So um, uh, he discussed the work and then uh, decided to stay in Germany and then ended up staying until end of August. So uh, yeah, we flew on the 31st of August, 2020 to Singapore. And uh, I was actually happy that I had a little bit more time to set up the schools <laughs> and uh, make sure that, um, yeah, they were they were going to launch successfully. Were the schools hard hit by COVID or were, did they benefit from it or was it neutral? Yeah, it was very difficult. It was it is in-person learning. Uh it's peer-to-peer learning because there's no teachers. So the students come to the physical location of the campus and then the learning itself is all tech enabled. So you log in into your your profile and you get your next project. But the learning takes place in person. So uh, that was very difficult with uh, with COVID and the campuses had different measures in place. But yeah, that was a very difficult time and now they're back to uh, back to normal. And then I guess, what was it like to sort of uproot your life and your family and bring them to Singapore? I'm sure this isn't the first time you've done it because you went to London and Frankfurt, but this is to a whole other uh, continent farther yeah. across um, the other side of the world. So what was it like? Um, were you excited? Were you nervous? <laughs> yeah, I mean, excited, right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of change. I liked Asia. I've traveled a lot in Asia. Uh, I've been to Indonesia twice for a really quite long period of time and Vietnam, Thailand, etc. So I know I like Asia. Living here was, of course, different. But um, in the end, the geographical distance was hard because it was COVID. So fan- friends and family were really, really far away. It was not easy just to go back. There was one thing. But the integration in Singapore was much easier than, for example, in Germany. And that is also, I think, a cultural difference where Singapore is so so open and so used to people coming in that it's easy to integrate. You just have to choose how you want to integrate. Whereas in Germany, it was it was harder. Uh, it was harder to get into the local uh, layers. Was London yeah. easier than Singapore or was it about the same as international? Yeah, London was easier than Singapore. Oh, yeah. in what ways? Yeah. Oh, London is so international. Hmm. Did you know that 64% of the people who live in London have parents that are not born in the UK? Oh, okay. So 60. Well. I didn't know it was yeah. that big. <laughs> exactly, 64. And their parents are not in the UK. So that's the, the whole country then. So yeah, it's a very international. Um, I remember moving from Amsterdam to London. I thought, oh, everybody's going to hear that I'm not from here because of my accent. And I was really worried about that. And then I just got out on the street and everybody has an accent. Nobody speaks British English. Or, well, of course, a few, but so many do not. So, um, 
it was really easy to kind of uh, integrate. And uh, yeah, I loved London. I would move back there in a, in a heartbeat. It's got a good vibe. Well, haven't been there since Brexit. Of course, things have changed. But um, yeah, still love that liveliness and the international uh, society. Yeah. And then moving to Singapore, was it easy to find your next thing to work on? Was it already lined up for you? It lined up quite quickly as the um, School 42, well, also the, the, the minister, so Ong Ye Kung, when he was minister of education before COVID, already had his eye on School 42 and to bring that to Singapore. But then COVID hit, so that whole project came to a standstill. After COVID, he wanted to pick that up again and was in talks with the French ambassador. So when I moved to Singapore, the link was made quite quickly that I had done this just in Germany. So they wanted to learn how I did it in Germany. So as soon as I landed here, I started working with the, the French uh, embassy and their, their person for innovation and education to set up these schools together with uh, Singapore. So, yeah, that was a project that kicked off right away. I had the information, everything that I learned from setting up two campuses in Germany and how to do it. Ultimately, SUTD, one of the newer universities in Singapore, took the license and uh, it actually opened uh, this year, earlier this year. Is that the university where you don't need credentials, you don't have teachers and then the credentials are given? Something like that. I remember that headline. There's a school in yeah, Singapore yeah, yeah. that doesn't, there's a school in Singapore that doesn't need any teachers, doesn't need any blank. Oh, okay. That's it. So that's you. Yeah. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's now in SUTD, but I helped set it up in the beginning and, uh, yeah, shared everything that I knew about setting up a campus. So, um, yeah. How does it feel now that it's, you know, well, not alive and well, but here up and running? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, good, good. But I don't feel very much uh, attached to it because Mm -hmm. it was really very much in the beginning. And then they just uh, took it up uh, themselves. So uh, with the launch, for example, I was not involved. I just shared the information from the beginning. And I think that that helped them mm. launch it successfully. Yeah. So it's more of the launch and really the starting point that you maybe shared information about. But I guess like what it is now is very different as well from what, um, what you ran in Germany. Because this one is not focused on coding, right? It is focused on Oh, I thought it does more. Well, there's there's talk about doing different subjects. It's more the education system that is quite uh, revolutionary. Uh, and you can apply it to uh, baking bread, for example, right? It doesn't have to be coding as it uh, is, is a peer-to-peer concept. But this one, until date 42, is only coding. Um, yeah, but uh, education is not in a crisis. On the contrary, in Singapore. So for people to choose... Another path than the conventional path in Singapore is uh, is quite rare, I would expect. So, yeah, be interesting to see how it uh, takes off here and how it is accepted. And then how did you get from there and other things you worked on? I think I also saw that you dabbled in some coaching to VC with Insignia Adventure Academy and what you're doing now with Epic Angel. Yeah, that was... Um, so I started working with founders here in Singapore who who knew about School 42 and said, oh, that's interesting. You set it up. Do you want to help me build my company? So that is how I got in touch first with founders in the ad tech space. When you talk with founders, you talk about fundraising quite quickly after. And that is where I had a gap. Of course, I knew a bit about due diligence, but the whole M&A space that I was in in PricewaterhouseCoopers is very different from raising your your seed fund, for example. So uh, I had a gap there, uh, which I wanted to fill. So that really looking intentionally for a course to fill that knowledge gap. I ended up at Insignia uh, Ventures Academy, IVA, was the first cohort there. It's a three-month course about venture capital, how it works, and then specifically in Southeast Asia. So that is what I did right quickly after I landed here, which has uh, given great knowledge and insights and also, again, build a great network here. It's still a very, very tight network. They're launching now cohort five. And so still still very much involved with them, with the academy. So that is great. So yeah, that, that came naturally. I wanted to kind of improve my knowledge of the venture capital space. In parallel, as I came out of quarantine here, so we landed in September 2020, already did some 
you know, calls, et cetera, just to, to get to know the people here. And somebody said, oh, you need to meet such and such. And I forgot the name. So I looked on LinkedIn and I filtered on Singapore. And then I saw the name of Mike Gedoyer, who's currently my business partner at Epic Angels. And Mike and I, we worked together at PwC. Those oh. years, uh, so 2006, 7 and 8. We worked together in the same team. So we did projects together and stuff. And when I moved on to Deutsche Bank, we just lost touch. So we could always get along well, but that's how it goes, right? You move on and you lose touch. So I was like, Mike, do you in Singapore? So we had not touched, talked for 15 years. Uh, so I sent her a message on LinkedIn. Is that, are you, uh, is that right? She said, yeah, we moved about a month ago and we also moved a month ago. So we arrived yeah. in Singapore in the same month. They came from San Francisco. And Mike had been working with hundreds of startups on innovative business models in San Francisco. And uh, so that same evening that we found each other on LinkedIn, we had dinner in uh, Marina Bay Sands. It was, we had, <laughs> we had dinner and uh, yeah, clicked again. And uh, we both wanted to do more in the startup world here in Southeast Asia, being very exciting space and um, started out with getting together with five. So, so we invited three others, just friends, just women who, also wanted to get to know the startup industry here better. And um, yeah, we started on, on Wednesday evenings with a bottle of wine, looking at demo days on YouTube saying, would you invest in this just to validate what did, what do you think are risks or compelling elements? And uh, that was a lot of fun. And then we made an actual investment. So we just clubbed together our investments and, uh, and invested in the Bangladesh health tech, which is now raising. We invested again in the follow-up round. Uh, for seven and a half times the valuation. So that was a good first one. And that's how Epic Angel started. So again, that was not at all by design. That was just by, you know, we got together with these five women and uh, founders started to come to us and said, that's interesting, you're female investors. I would love to have some women in my support system. So either on my cap table, my advisory board or in the board. So that's when we found out there's not only the need for women to to break into VC, which is very difficult, such a male-dominated world, but also from founders to have more women in their uh, uh, in their support system. So that's when Mike and I, both being relatively new to Singapore, said, aha, there's something here. Let's see what this is. So we picked it up, built the whole backend. Mike is brilliant with IT, so she built the whole website and uh, everything integrated with the Airtable. And then in November 2021, we said, okay, if you fit this profile, you can join us. And then year end 2021, we were with 11. Uh, the year after year end, 116, I remember. And now we are with over 225. So these are all women uh, from all over the world investing in startups in APAC. Hey, wow, this is wonderful. So I didn't expect this to be the backstory. <laughs> <laughs> and that is how it kind of gradually evolved. And uh, yeah, now we really, it seems like we're onto something. We just... Uh, invested in our 19th company and um, we do uh, we make investing accessible for women that's basically what we do through deal flow through education and uh, and a peer network so really a community of like-minded women i mean what are the chances that when you're back to singapore you meet somebody haven't spoken to in 15 years at the same time as you I know. And the funny thing is she saw me at the integrate, I think at the MOM, right? You have to get your pass, et cetera. And then she saw me, she's, she thought she saw me, but of course we had not seen each other for 15 years. She was like, is so, that she was like, oh, cool. yeah. not I mean, you wouldn't know, time. right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And then, uh, yeah, indeed. So yeah, is that coincidence? I don't know. It's uh, it was definitely an, an opportunity that we both saw and <laughs> it's, it's great to work together. We're both Dutch, so we're very direct sometimes, uh, our interns think that we're fighting, but that's we're just making things better. And uh, it's uh, it's great to work together. So we keep it very lean. We know exactly how we want to grow, what we want to be in this space. Our growth is, is, is a good sign that we're on the right track. So It's funny because like you also just so happen to be looking on LinkedIn for whoever could be in Singapore. Like if you didn't yeah. do that on that day, yes. I wonder if you guys would have ever like, reconnected because she did sort of see you, but wasn't sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And she lives on the East Coast. We live in the Bukatima area. So we would never. And also she doesn't have kids. We have kids. So our circles are very different. Oh. Our location is different. So we, we may have never met. Yeah. And then how did the one dinner lead to another? Like, how did you think about like 
bringing it from just the two of you to bringing in more friends like how did the dinners become bigger and bigger did you have an objective to the dinners like meeting with her to catch up and then decided like let's meet regularly to talk about startups was it like that yeah it was like that and the other three who joined they came in via micah so micah had already connected with them as she was working on also doing the the business model canvas projects here so she connected with them and invited them to these to, to these evenings so we just started out with these evenings uh, on the roof terrace uh talking about startups that we could find on the internet it was as simple as that and then like when you were speaking with her how did you end up thinking to yourself like let's meet regularly about startups is it because um she was the only person you knew who was interested in startups that was your friend like how did that moment of like we should yes, meet regularly yes, for startups yes. appear yeah, no, it just happened. We we shared this um, this interest and excitement and curiosity about startups. We loved working with startups and also to get to know Southeast Asia as an emerging market for startups and how that worked. So we just wanted to learn more. And then we found other women who had who were in the same boat who wanted to learn more and start investing, and and that is how it started. And we just said, okay, let's meet every Wednesday. That's how it went. And then we actually made. Yeah, an investment. Uh, so, yeah, it went from one thing to the other. Uh, and then, indeed, yeah, founders contacted us saying, oh, do you want to look at my pitch deck? <laughs> We're like, oh, now we are investors. Okay, that's cool. And then we we got to know more women. And the need for learning was was very clear. So how, where do I ask the questions that I'm not comfortable asking in a group of men, right? So for how do I read a safe note, for example, or what can I expect in terms of traction at, at a seed stage or what round size is typical for A? I don't know. The thing, just the questions that, where do you ask them? Uh, we see that, I mean, the VC industry, I think globally is very male dominated. And in Asia, there's 2.4% of all the part partners in VC firms is is a woman so very very uh heavy on the on the men's side and yeah it's it's women who were looking for just a, a space where they could ask the questions uh have these conversations etc and that that felt good so we are still very heavy on the hands-on learning uh, providing these learning opportunities for women we have a WhatsApp community and we have one of the groups in there is the Rookie channel where everybody can ask questions. That's the most active channel and all sorts of questions are being asked and also answered by each other. And this is where these diverse views help us learn on all sorts of things. So I learn a lot about industries I don't know nothing about, for example, but also help us make better investment decisions. For example, the other day we had a health tech from India. We have an MD from Mercer March Benefits who said, okay, this this model doesn't work because of the role of insurers is such and such, which is something I would have never known otherwise. And uh, and because of that, because of the very open sharing of knowledge and expertise and experience, yeah, we educate, educate each other and uh, and make better investment decisions. How did you end up making those dinners um, more and more women? Like how come like, from the outset you sort of decided that, okay, it should only be women? Is it because they wanted to initially make a circle of friends of other women in Singapore or was it because you knew from the outset? Mm-hmm. It was never a social driver. It was really to help women get started, get mm-hmm. from zero to one in investing in startups. Right. So both Mike and I had this experience. Mike had experience in San Francisco. I had experience in Germany where we started uh, angel investing and it is really fun. It's, we, we really enjoyed this. So we wanted to give this opportunity to more women and to start learning about this. It's really to, to start mm-hmm. from, from zero and get to one and get a little bit more confident and comfortable making making investments. So Amazing. it was always around that. It was not a social uh, thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So from the and outset, then, it was always okay. about, you know, educating other women, helping other yeah. women get started with investing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I was wondering, like, how did you end up doing your first investment? Did you guys look at a couple of deals that you wanted to invest in first or before you made that first investment? Or did, you know, you guys already get started once you saw that first deal that you could take? We got pitch decks quite soon after that first investment. Mm -hmm. And then we just discussed these pitch decks, like, what is this and what is it not? And uh, we also had to educate ourselves. What can we expect in this region and what do we see around us? So when we see investments and pitch decks that we saw at very early days of Epic Angels and we look at them now, 
we realize how much we have also evolved and, and, and grown. It's like, okay, this is something that maybe we would not have done now. We are also learning. It is not that we know everything. It is uh, everybody. This is really a, a community that's where content is, is exchanged a lot. And um, it came naturally, I would say. How about the first investment? Was the first investment that you guys made the first um, startup that you guys are really interested and in, wanted to invest in? Yeah. Did it take some time? Oh, or it was from the get-go, you knew you wanted to invest and then you did immediately. We saw it. I, I don't remember how we found the startup. It's uh, Aroga in uh, in Bangladesh. Uh, we were really impressed by the team. So it was uh, two Bangladeshi engineers who came up with a solution to distribute uh, genuine medicine from the manufacturer to the consumer, so to the patient. This middle layer, so the man on the street, that's a, a layer where a lot goes wrong in Bangladesh. The 20% of the medicine that is sold there is faulty, it's not real, and 80% of the staff is untrained. They basically take out this layer and go directly from the manufacturer to the patient. So they um, uh, built the tech behind it, so it's an app. And then two investors from London, originally also Bangladeshis, they invested and they saw that these guys are brilliant, but very heavy on the tech side and missed the, the business acumen. So then they decided to join. So she became the CEO and he became the CTO. And uh, they run it now with the four of them. The two have moved to Bangladesh. So now they're uh, four together. Uh, in the past two years, they have really built out this infrastructure network that was not existent in Bangladesh yet. And based on this, they are now getting into more high margin uh, B2C uh, activities, such as uh, lab testing, doctor consultations, insurance, their own brand also. And uh, the network, the infrastructure network they use for B2B uh, activities for from pharmacies, but also for food, for example. Um, so we bet on the team. When we invested, there was not even a website yet. So Oh, wow. Yeah. Not even a website yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very early. Yeah. But we had some experience with startups, right? From early investments, et cetera, and, uh, and working with startups. So we knew, we knew a bit, you know, what to look out for. When you started Epic Angels, I started hosting those dinners and they were getting bigger and bigger. And then you did your maybe first one or two investments. Um, at that time, did you already know that Epic Angels was the thing you wanted to focus on fully and, you know, you didn't want to look for another job? Or did it take some time for you to think, okay, this is where I'll stay put and what I'll be building for the next few years? It's always been the thing that I love doing most in my week. I always gravitate towards Epic Angels and building it and, and, and running it. The practical fact is that I need to sustain myself because we're on a, a employment pass here. So you need to make an income, et cetera. So in Epic Angels, uh, we don't earn anything with it apart mm. from the carry when there's an exit, but there's no management fee or no salary mm. component for Mike and I in this. So in that sense, we're actually volunteers who've been running this for two years. Uh, so need to make, make sure that I can stay here and, and stay working. So I've always worked with corporates and mostly banks. Mm who I can relate to because of my background in Deutsche Bank and PwC, who now want to look more into the, the innovator's mindset. Mm. Basically, for two, either they see tech entrepreneurs as a new client segment, or they want to update their own leadership skills. So I do a lot of work coaching and, and, and training mm. workshops with banks uh, about mm -hmm. tech entrepreneurship. So mainly your income right now comes from the coaching side, and it allows you to, you know, well, Focus on doing Epic Angels, which in itself is, you know, hard to run as something for profit, yet makes you happy and is really a net positive for the ecosystem and the other women involved. Yeah, yeah. What's the difficult thing about uh, juggling both? Is it not as difficult because maybe coaching is a bit more flexible um, and you can set your own hours? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I can do that very flexibly, which is good because also uh, kids are still under 10, so need a bit of help here and there. Um, so this flexibility really suits me well. So it was, uh, was, it's not, was not too easy to set up, the, especially during COVID times to set up a company here in Singapore, mm -hmm. but it worked and uh, really happy did this now. So I can mm -hmm. be fully flexible, do exactly what I love, uh, where, where I also feel there's, there's value added. And then I was wondering when you joined like IBA and Signet Ventures Academy. Mm -hmm. When you joined, did you already know you wanted to do investing 
afterwards or were you not so sure yet when you joined the course? Um already done some angel investments in mm. Germany. And I love working with startups because of my own founder experience in, in Germany. So yes, I knew I was wanted to do this. And the first reason was to be able to help founders better by understanding how investors think. That was the main reason. Yeah. And then in parallel, Epic Angels grew and we became more of an investment body ourselves. Yeah. What are the challenges of running something like Epic Angels versus a typical VC firm? It, apart from the salary, of course. The challenge as well is also the, the fun part, I think, is the uh, is the community management. The community is one of our most important assets in the sense that this is where the knowledge is built and, and flows. So the community of angel investors that we have, we come together every month. This is where the, the value is added for most of our investors. So managing the community and making sure that we are bringing the deals that they like, communicate just enough, not too much, not too little. That's always a challenge. Um, and keep them engaged, always giving something that they're really happy with and, and makes them want to stay with Epic Angels is, uh, I would say, the biggest challenge, but also is the thing that it gives us most energy to to be with, uh, with these women because they're all powerhouse women. They all have achieved something. I mean, if you can do angel investing, you have achieved something. So it's all women who, who've earned their own money and either they are founded themselves, some have exited, some are in a corporate, uh, have made a corporate career. They all have a story to tell. They all have made it to a certain level. So they're one by one, they're super interesting uh, women and the level of trust is very high in the community, which we are very happy with because we grew purely organically and um, we need to maintain it as we grow because now we grow to a level that we don't know everyone personally anymore. Right. 200 that plus is a lot. <laughs> it's hard it's to have lot. a dinner yeah. with 200 people too. <laughs> I cannot imagine such a long table or even a big table. <laughs> it's a good one. We should try. Well, funnily <laughs> enough, our second largest country in terms of members is the US. So these oh. are Asian women. Yeah, that is a surprising fact, isn't it? So largest is Singapore, of course, because we we are here and we grow organically. But second is, is the US, where these are Asian women who want to stay in touch and support the Asian startup system. So uh, like to invest with us in um, in Asia. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. But how did they even find out about it? Because of your co-founder or is it some other way? I think, yeah, I think LinkedIn, honestly, mm -hmm. that is our main channel yeah oh, uh, about it yeah and then network mike has network in the us so that's uh i think goes quickly throughout the past almost three years what has brought you the most joy in running epic angels is what parts of the I, i'm assuming it's a community but if not feel free to correct me but if it is a community what parts of it brings you the most joy it's really two things it's the community so being in this community with these women who one by one are amazing and, and real drivers of whatever they're doing. The second one is working with founders. I still really love the energy of founders who are creating something that they believe in, really going their own path, have their own vision. When it's a good founder and they're really on the right track, that gives me energy like nothing else. I think that is super exciting. And uh, I know being a founder is hard. Right? It's very lonely. Sometimes uh, friendships have you know decreased because you're working all the time. People don't understand what you're building. So I understand being a founder is often hard. And um, when interacting with founders, as I do mentoring and coaching and stuff, uh, I really like to go there and, and help them where I can. But that is what gives me most energy. Yeah, these learning about solutions that they're building, the drive that they have, and learning about the actual problems here. The new technologies that can help solving real problems in the region is, is really exciting. Yeah. I'm really excited for you and Epic Angel Tester. And to close the episode, I want to ask you one question I ask everybody on the podcast, and that is outside of work, what is one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? And there's no strict time frame. It could be two years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, anything that comes to mind that you want to achieve in your personal life. Oh, I would love my kids to be as, uh, you know, open-minded and, and good world citizens in that sense. Uh, being able to live anywhere and survive whatever they do, wherever they live. So that is uh, something I would I would love to see. Well, I'm sure you're a great influence in helping them think like that and get those kinds of opportunities for themselves. So I'm really excited for them too. <laughs> 
<laughs> about them at all. <laughs> I'm pretty happy under control. <laughs> I sometimes bring them to uh, meetings with founders uh, when they are when it's, it's focused on kids, so they uh, know what MPS score is, etc. So they <laughs> are there any surprising things that you figure out they learn from you <laughs> or the startup world? Oh yeah, we talk about uh, uh, pitch decks a lot. Uh, so I say oh, this is an interesting concept, and I mean, if you can explain it to a child, if you cannot explain it to a child, it's not a good pitch, right? So I yeah. explain it, and uh, the oldest one has the most interest in it. He's nine, and uh, he asks the best questions. He he asks super simple, but so the the best questions. It's um, so I, I really like discussing that with him, and he wants to run his own business and make his own money. So this is a good way of uh, teaching him concepts like go to market, uh-huh. how important it is, focusing on your target group, understanding the problems that they're dealing with. Sounds like uh, going through different pitch decks would help really make them open-minded because so many industries, so many products, and then being open-minded enough to see, you know, which ones end up working and which don't and which surprise you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a great tool. Yeah, and I, I like uh, teaching them, asking the right question, right? especially now with generative AI. It's not about what you learn. It's about asking the right question. And I think that's a real key life skill. So um, there's many ways to uh, show them how important that is and, and get some of that in. Yeah.